Howdy. And good morning. Oh, excuse me. Oh, look out. Hey, how about that uh, piano playing right there and the rest of the band? That was pretty good. Y'all, I'm concerned y'all take that for granted. Uh, that is way above average uh, in your rhythm section. Uh, really, really happy with that. So, uh, good morning. Let's, uh, let's pray that I don't screw this up too badly. Let's do that together. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Jesus, we thank you that you're standing uh, at the door and you're knocking. And we can hear your voice. Father, Spirit, Jesus, come in. Come in and fill us with the bread of life, the water that lives. Fill us with your power and love and peace. Thank you for your word. May it speak clearly to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mira, yo estoy la puerta y llamo. May I have a translation, please? I had an excellent Spanish teacher in high school, believe it or not. Uh, Based on what you just heard, you could understand why Mr. Broussard, after two years of listening to my tortured elocution in what is supposed to be a beautiful language, said, please promise me you'll never speak Spanish in public, Jack. And uh, I generally have kept the promise. I broke it today. We're going to talk today about Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and I am knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to that person and eat with that person. And that person will eat with me. Uh, Revelation 3.20. This is a very uh, famously overused and misunderstood uh, and I think underappreciated verse. In fact, I'm going to try to make the argument today that even though it's underused, I mean overused, it's actually underused uh, by you. And my goal today is to have this verse be a verse that comes to your mind tomorrow morning when you wake up and that you will act on it. So Revelation 3.20, behold, I am standing at the door and I'm knocking. Are you all generally familiar with this verse? So uh, I'm a person who has probably overused and misused this verse on occasion. Uh, For almost 40 years, 30 something years, uh, Diana and I had this extremely high privilege of being Young Life leaders. Y'all familiar with Young Life ministry? Uh, It's a ministry where people from various churches, adults who love Jesus and uh, know the power of His grace and forgiveness, try to make friends with uh, generally disinterested, rambunctious, and uh, uh, high school kids. And in the context of those friendships, Uh, in a variety of ways, try to present to them the good news of God's love in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's it's a challenging work. If you you know a Young Life leader, uh, uh, and I hope that you do, pray for that person by name, uh, even today. Uh, God bless uh, those leaders uh, who take this good news to high school kids. 
Uh, I, uh, I did it for a long time. I probably did it too long. I did it longer than I was probably uh, equipped and uh, able to do so in a semi-competent way. But I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop doing it because I saw so many wonderful things happen when high school kids hear the gospel. So uh, I would give talks, Young Life talks. So we'd have a meeting. Uh, we'd get anywhere from 50 to 500 kids into some, some room, and uh, we would sing some songs, and then we'd throw some pies or do some other, you know, hijinks like that, play a game, uh, and then we'd sing some more songs. And then, you know, uh, then some poor guy, and often it was me, would have to stand up there and try to hold the attention of the high school kids for just a few minutes in order to get out the message of the gospel. And if you think it's easy to hold the attention of high school kids for even a few minutes, then uh, you've never tried to do it. So, it. so desperate times call for desperate measures. And so one of the things I would do uh, in order to hold these kids' attention is I would you know, tell them stories about my erstwhile uh, uh, semi-hilarious uh, uh, a short career as a police officer in the city of Dallas. Because back then, uh, you know, uh, high school kids in general didn't hate police officers, and it was okay for me to talk about that. I don't know about today. But I could tell those stories, and they got better every time I told them. Uh, you can believe that. I became a police officer as a result of a practical joke that spun wildly out of control, and I just really found myself in a Dallas police uniform with all my long hair cut off, my beard shaved. I'm just down to my standalone uh, Magnum P.I. village person mustache, which was standard uh, issue in the Dallas Police Department in the 70s. And I really couldn't believe this was my job because I never had even particularly liked or admired police officers. Uh, and I'd generally been on the wrong end of all kinds of police uh, interest and actions. But here I was enforcing the laws in the city of Dallas. And, and I was not very good at it. Uh, and I certainly wasn't good at it when I was a very green rookie. And the story I'm about to tell you, which was my Revelation 3.20 story that I would use with the high school kids, uh, happened when I was still relatively new to the streets of Dallas. I was working a beat uh, in the western part of Dallas on this stretch of road called Harry Hines Boulevard. And back in the 70s, that was a very disreputable section of town. It had a series of bars that, you know, were biker bars primarily, where outlaw biker gangs hung out with their, with their uh, girlfriends, and their girlfriends worked in some other bars that were called topless bars, uh, not because they didn't have a roof, but because, well, just because that's, you know, kind of the dress code was different in those places back then. And then, uh, so I had the biker bars and the topless bars. And then if you got biker bars and topless bars, the other thing you need on Harry Hines Boulevard would have been the, ho the little motels where you could rent a room at less than a daily rate. And so we had those as well. So it was a very rich crime-fighting environment. It was a target-rich environment in which to fight crime if you were a young uh, rookie police officer generally looking for all kinds of adventure, which I was. So we had this call uh, that came in, and we had developed, uh, my partner training officer that I rode with had developed a relationship with the person who worked the front desk at one of these no-till motels, and she had some what we call actionable uh, information for us, because there was a gang of armed robbers 
that was, uh, uh, had been, had been uh, uh, breaking in uh, in business hours, heavily armed with guns, and robbing pharmacies, and not only taking cash, but taking lots of drugs, taking opioids, synthetic opioids, uh, which were very much uh, in demand then as they are now. And, and this uh, desk clerk said that gang of armed robbers was actually staying in her motel. And we uh, listened to her story. It sounded fairly credible. She told us the room they were in. We looked and parked right outside of that room was one of the cars that had been identified with one of the robberies. So that seemed to check out. So my uh, training officer uh, partner, he had a lot of relationships in the department. He actually had formerly worked in the narcotics division. He called uh, his friends in the narcotics division, told them about the information. They said, okay, you stake out that room. Don't let anybody leave. Uh, wait for us. We're going to get a warrant. We'll be there as soon as we can. Well, it didn't take long for him to get a warrant. And then so comes rolling up into the parking lot where we've been waiting were these, uh, you know, a uh, couple of carloads full of guys who looked like total hippies and street thugs. These were our narcotics officers in the city of Dallas in the 70s. And they got out and they, they started putting on their bulletproof vest and then they uh, double-checked their warrant, and they got out this little uh, battering ram device. And they said, okay, we're going in. And, uh, and they looked at me, the rookie, and said, would you like to be the first man in? And I said, very much so, thank you. I'd be honored. I said, heck yes. So, so uh, they said, now, these guys are heavily armed. Don't let any of them shoot any of us. Okay. I understood the mission. So these guys were pretty good at knocking down doors, and that wasn't much of a door, by the way, uh, on that particular no-tell motel. And so, so they, they uh, it's a no-knock warrant, so you, you just we walked right up quietly, uh, and the first thing you would hear if you were inside that room was the sound of your door crashing, and the first thing you'd see would be me. Uh, coming through that door and the first thing I saw was a guy picking up a gun and pointing it straight at us so I would tell that story and believe it or not I would hold people's attention at least for about 11 minutes telling that story and of course what I'd get around to is uh, you know Jesus doesn't even need a warrant to come into your life. But he's not going to knock down the door. He's just knocking. And you're going to have to let him in. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Well, for, for, forgive me. This is Friendswood Baptist Church. Let's do it the King James Version. I will sup with him and he with me. Thank you very much, y'all. I've, re I've read the King James Bible in my life. Sup, sup sounds even better. But we need to consider the verse in its context because I think it'll open, open some doors uh, for you in your spirit. Open your minds to how the Revelation 3.20 is not 
this thing that happened at some point in time when you first opened the door to Jesus and invited him into your life. But Revelation 3.20 is much more relevant to you today than it's ever been. So, uh, in context, uh, you remember uh, John. John the Revelator. John, uh, the disciple. John, who's exiled uh, by the Roman Empire because of his commitment to the testimony of Jesus uh, and the Word of God. John, who's on this, uh, this desolate island alone, and he's caught up in this vision, and he encounters the resurrected Jesus Christ, this glorious figure. And then he's given this vision, uh, and he's given this uh, directive uh, to write uh, to write down these words that must be delivered uh, to a series of churches uh, in, the, in the western part of Asia, Asia Minor. And so that's, that's how this gets started. And we come to Revelation 3, uh, verse 14, where to the seventh of the seven churches, the church at Laodicea, and Jesus had a specific word uh, for each church. And when we get to the church of Laodicea, uh, and Jesus, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the Arche, the originator of God's creation. So Jesus is, uh, what he does with each of these letters is he kind of states his credentials. His authority. And so the authority he gives here is he is the amen, which is a way of saying he's the truth. The word amen means so be it. It's an affirmation of that which is fundamentally, irrevocably true. The faithful and true witness and the ruler or the beginning or the originator of the creation of God. That's his basis of authority. And what does he say to the Laodiceans? Picking up in verse 15. I know your works. Now, Jesus can say that to every church and every person in every church. He absolutely knows. But to the Laodiceans, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. It would be better if you were cold or hot. What? Why would it be better to be cold? And to understand this, we need to understand a little bit about Laodicea and the water problem. Laodicea was this... uh, was this community, this city. It was an important commercial center. It had uh, great wealth. It had people who uh, were, were uh, leaders uh, in commerce and who had accumulated uh, significant wealth. Laodicea was famous uh, for uh, having a medical center, just like Houston, uh, where they prepared these ointments, these, these compounds, that were reputed to have all types of therapeutic and healing powers. 
including specifically uh, a famous ointment for the eyes. Uh, Laodicea was a proud town. Uh, This this, uh, letter is being delivered to them at the very end of the first century, but in 60 AD, Laodicea and the other communities in in the Lycus River Valley were absolutely devastated by a huge earthquake. Colossae and Hierapolis were the neighboring communities. Colossae never actually recovered. They get a letter from Paul, which we have in our New Testament, and not long after that, the community is almost completely wiped out by an earthquake. In Laodicea, they had t-shirts or togas, I guess, more accurately said, Laodicea is strong. They were very proud. They were very wealthy, and they, didn't, they got knocked down, but they didn't stay down. In fact, they rebuilt bigger and better after the earthquake, and they were very proud of their accomplishments. But Laodicea had one problem that was well known. Uh, They had a water problem. And we take water for granted today. We shouldn't. It's incredible uh, in terms of the whole course uh, and scope of human history that we have so much access uh, to drinkable water. It's so easy for us. I know that you're very missionally oriented here, so you have great awareness of how uh, unique that is in human history and even on on the world today and how precious water is. Now, we take it for granted here. In Laodicea, they had a water problem, but they were can-do people. So uh, they were six miles from uh, Hierapolis, and Hierapolis was famous for having these hot springs, uh, amazing hot springs. Now, they were, uh, it was twice as far to Colossae, Colossae was famous for having this spring water that was cool and refreshing, the best drinking water uh, just about in all of Asia Minor. But in Laodicea, they had no water source. But they're can-do people, so they built a system of aqueducts. They built a, uh, had great engineers, and they figured out a way to get the water from Hierapolis to Laodicea. So the water starts out uh, in the hot springs of Hierapolis, but by the time it traverses the six miles of the aqueduct, it's no longer hot, but it's not cold. It's lukewarm. And by the way, heavily, uh, still heavily laced with minerals. Laodicea had a water problem. Let me read this to you again. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. It would be better if you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am fixing to spit you out of my mouth. Whoa. Jesus is saying, you're just like your water. He isn't saying, I want you to be hot and not cold or lukewarm. He's saying, it would be great if you were hot, because hot water is awesome. It has incredible healing properties. It'd be great if you were cold, because cold water is awesome. It's refreshing and cool to drink. But you are not hot or cold. You're useless to me in terms of fulfilling the mission that I've called you to fulfill. 
Jesus point to the Laodiceans and all their pride and all their accomplishments and all of their can-do attitude and all of their engineering marvels and all of their commercial success was you're useless to the mission of the kingdom of God. And they weren't useless in spite of their great accomplishments. They were useless because of their great accomplishments. So what does Jesus say to them? Uh, he goes on to give the diagnostics of the problem. Because you say, I am wealthy. And I have accumulated or acquired or built a fortune for myself. And I have no need of anything. This is their problem. Their problem is they have these arrogant delusions of self-sufficiency based on their worldly success. Because you are, you say all this, and you do not know. And what does Jesus tell them they do not know? You do not know that you are pathetic and destitute. Oh, you do not know that you are wretched, <laughs> miserable, pathetic, destitute, and blind and naked. Jesus is not pulling punches here in this letter. He is reading a, he is bringing them an incredible indictment of their predicament. And there's this gap between what they think about themselves and the actual reality of who and what they are. They think, they think one thing and their delusions of self-sufficiency, Laodicea is strong, but the reality that Jesus sees in terms of their spiritual condition, in terms of the, the plight of their souls, is that they are miserable. They are pathetic or pitiable. That if you saw, have you seen, ever look, laid your eyes on anyone that is miserable and pathetic? I mean, sadly, we see it all the time in a big city. People, the very, the very sight of them uh, breaks your heart. Jesus says, this is you, Laodicea. You are truly miserable. You're truly pitiable or pathetic. And you're truly destitute. There are two words in the Greek language for poor. One word uh, refers to those who were the working poor. That was most people who would make enough each day for their own sustenance and the sustenance of the people who depended on them. They didn't have any left over at the end of the day, but they were making it day to day. There's that word for poor. There's another word for poor. It's referring to those people who cannot in any way begin to fend for themselves. The absolutely, completely destitute, Jesus says, that's you. You're not the working poor. You're the most down and out poor in terms of your spiritual condition. And to make it worse, you're blind. And to make it worse, you're naked. And remember, you're all these things and you don't even know it. 
which is doubly bad. Because of your complete lack of self-awareness of the reality of your spiritual condition. So, that's some rough words. Why is Jesus telling them this? What's, what's Jesus' point? Well, let's keep going. Picking up in verse 18. I counsel you. Here's some advice, he says. I counsel you. To purchase from me gold refined out of the fire so that you may be truly rich. And white garments in order that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may no longer be exposed. An ointment or salve to anoint your eyes so that you may truly see reality. The Jews saying, I know exactly what you need. You have no self-awareness of your predicament, but trust me, your situation is desperate, but what I've got for you is gold refined by the fire. I've got for you treasures in heaven that cannot be uh, stolen, that do not rust, that are not subject to the whims of uh, um, fiscal policies and inflation. I've got for you real clothes. And of course, this metaphor of clothing uh, uh, in the New Testament is what we're to put on is the justice and the power and the grace and the glory of Jesus himself. And then I've got this salve for your eyes so that you can see. Now here's the irony. They thought they were the wealthiest people in the empire and they thought they had all the answers to everybody else's uh, problems and they themselves in their reality miserable pathetic destitute blind and naked but Jesus says I've got what you need he says as many as I love verse 19 I rebuke and I discipline So everything Jesus is saying, as hard as these words sound, as insensitive and uncaring as they might appear to be, uh, isn't it better to hear the truth and to know the reality of your situation? Isn't that better than being completely unaware that you're living in this delusional uh, self-sufficiency, but you are completely uh, missing out on life itself? So he says, have a sense of urgency and repent. And this word for repentance here uh, uh, is a word that uh, uh, we, we throw it around in Christian circles. We don't throw it around enough, by the way. In fact, uh, sadly, uh, for probably over 100 years, a lot of us, uh, me included, have made Uh, the error of preaching a gospel without repentance, of preaching a grace that's too cheap. We've made this mistake. We've missed a fundamental point of the gospel itself. 
is that the good news of Jesus calls for us to turn around because we're going the wrong direction. It calls for us to change the way we think and act because we've been thinking and acting wrongly. That the gospel itself should have this transformative power and we are to cooperate with the gospel saying yes to the good news of Jesus and also at the same time saying no to the bogus self and saying no to the bogus world system as we align ourselves with the values and the power of the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, have a sense of urgency and repent. And we get now to Revelation 3.20 in context. Behold, I am standing at the door and I am knocking. This is the present tense. This is Jesus right now. As long as the moment is called now, Jesus is knocking. He is knocking at the door of every human heart. Whether you are inside the church or outside the church. Whether you uh, believed in him yesterday or you're planning to believe in him tomorrow, he is knocking at the door of your life Right now, this moment. If anyone hears my voice, key phrase. We have one job every day. We have have one job every day, which is to trust God and say yes. But in order to do that job, we first have to hear the voice of Jesus. We should have pray for ears to hear what God is saying to us every day as long as it's called today. There is no taking a day off from trying to hear the voice of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, because if you do hear God's voice, and one way to make sure you hear God's voice every day is to open the Bible every day and prayerfully tackle something good, right? One way to hear God's voice every day is to shut up and be quiet and turn off all your devices and all the commotion and distractions and just be quiet. One way to hear God's voice every day is to pick a a beautiful morning like you get these in Friendswood or a beautiful evening like you get these in Friendswood where you can catch the sun coming up or the sun going down, or go out somewhere apart from the pollution of the city, the light pollution of the city, and just look up in the middle of a dark night. You want to hear God's voice? God's voice is talking to you through a sunset and a sunrise, and he's talking to you through the stars that blanket the sky when we're apart from the pollution of the city. If you want to hear God's voice, there are so many ways to do it. If you want to hear the voice of God and how much he loves you, Just come spend some time with my golden retriever. Anybody's golden retriever. Or you may have a breed you prefer. God can even show his love to us and his grace through the creatures he makes. Through the the incredible uh, engineering intricacies of any routine, off-the-shelf, look in any tree, bird. 
is an expression of God's glory and greatness and beauty. We have to have eyes to see and ears to hear every day. We should go through the day saying, God, what do you have for me right now? And then you open the door. You say, this is what I want you. I want the God who gives me this word, the God who sends his son, the God who creates that bird, the God who gives us dogs and barbecue and stars. I want that God, the originator of God's creation. And that God is knocking at the door of your heart and saying, come on in. I want to come in. And I want to have personal relationship with you today. So our problem with Revelation 3.20 is we have presented this verse like that's something you did back in the 70s or the 80s when you first said yes to Jesus. No, Revelation 3.20 is a God's word for you in this church today. And when tomorrow turns into today, it'll still be God's word for you. And it's still calling for the same reaction. Hear the knocking, listen to the voice, say yes, open the door, and begin to experience today what what we promise in the book of Revelation is ultimately the consummation of God's kingdom with the wedding feast of the Lamb. It starts with a simple meal with Jesus today. Why would we not do this? I'm not on a high horse up here. I'm capable of taking a day off. The truth is, I've taken weeks off at a time from this simple exercise of opening that door to Jesus. What I would just ask is is you go through this week, starting today, think about who's knocking, and think about opening that door. You've got nothing more important to do. You've got nothing uh, that stands, uh, you've got nothing that will come close to blessing you that much. Today. So behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for all the ways you show your power and your majesty and your love. I thank you that even though you are the originator of God's creation, you stand knocking and ready to engage with us uh, in a personal way today. And I thank you that we can look forward to a real feast, a real feast when your kingdom comes in its fullness and your new creation uh, breaks in uh, in its totality. We believe it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's just continue where you're sitting right there and, and just bow your heads just for a moment and let's just con- think about what Brother Jack has shared with us today from the scripture from Revelation 3.20 and, and just how it spoke to your heart and asked God to reveal to you how you should respond to him today in hearing that message. I'm going to play a little bit.